The IPO window can be narrow. Be ready when it opens. Think timing is everything? Look again. Readiness is vital. Deloitte's audit and IPO readiness services can help companies prepare for IPO and exit opportunities. For example, a Deloitte audit is an opportunity for insight, one that can help leaders see further and deeper into their businesses and can help inform vital decisions. See how at Deloitte.com forward slash US forward slash EGC. That's D-E-L-O-I-T-T-E dot com forward slash US forward slash E-G-C. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with the top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I'm excited for you to meet my dear friend, Godard Abel, co-founder and CEO of G2, the world's largest and most trusted software marketplace. Godard co-founded G2 in 2012 and has since scaled the company to over 80 million users who use G2 to explore more than 145,000 different products. Headquartered in Chicago, G2 was most recently valued at $1.1 billion. In addition to G2, he is executive chairman of 3Kit, a leading 3D visualization technology company, and Logic.io, a next-generation configuration technology. Godard is a serial founder. His first company, a cloud-based price quoting provider called Big Machines, was acquired by Oracle. And his second company, a price quoting software provider for sales reps called Steelbrick, was acquired by Salesforce. Before tech, Godard consulted for McKinsey and advised leading manufacturers in the United States and Germany on strategy development. Godard earned an MBA from Stanford University and both a BS and MS in engineering from MIT. He is a member of the 2016 class of Henry Crown Fellows with me and an Aspen Global Leadership Network at the Aspen Institute. And with that, let's welcome my dear friend, Godard. Thank you so much for joining us today. You build so many things, but let's start with G2. What is G2 in your own words? And take us back to the beginning. Where did you see the white space in the market? Go back to the origin story. Yeah, and G2 is really the trusted place you go for software. And when we started G2 about 10 years ago, we said we're going to build a Yelp for business software. And I've been a business software entrepreneur for 25 years. And I really thought this was missing for our industry. And even 10 years ago, as consumers, we were shopping on Amazon based on reviews. We'd find hotel rooms based on reviews, but it didn't exist for our industry. And I think our, one of our founding mantras was, you know, why can't you get better advice on a $100 hotel room than you can on $100,000 CRM software? So we really set out to change that. Let's go back to those early days of 2012. The aha moment. You've built many companies. What made you be like, all right, I want to build another one? After I left my first company, Big Machines, you know, which eventually was bought by Oracle, kind of turned a big success, but it was also a long struggle. And I remember I had a bit of a break at about a year where I wasn't actively working on anything. And I was just, this idea just kind of kept coming to me. You know, I was just so frustrated by Gartner, by the status quo of our industry. And I just thought software entrepreneurs deserve something better. Software buyers deserve more real-time, better advice. And so it was just one of those ideas that wouldn't leave me. And then I recruited four of my friends from my first company, Big Machines, and they also decided they want to go back to building something again. And we did bounce other ideas, but this was just the idea. It just felt like our industry needed it, it just meant to be built. And uh, so we just decided to, to go do it. Right now, more than 80 million people use G2 each year, and I'm sure that number's already grown since I pulled it. 
Walk us through the experience of being a G2 user. How does it work? Give us a sense of the lay of the land. I think, um, you know, most people, they come to G2 when they're trying to discover software. And most people still discover us by Google. And so let's say you're looking for best CRM software. You're actively trying to research. And then I think that's how most users find us for the first time. And I think what they love about G2 for CRM software, for example, we have thousands of reviews of Salesforce, HubSpot, plus hundreds of more niche vendors that might have a unique CRM for your industry, particularly for you. And we really help them discover those apps and then compare them based on real user feedback. And so I think it really helps people, you know, whatever software they're looking for, just make faster, better, quicker buying decisions. How did you approach thinking about growth, thinking about building the product? Just given the landscape is so broad, but how did you think about developing the product and then thinking about the landscape? We did start this big vision. We're going to build a trusted place for software for any software you're buying. And we still have that big vision. Right now, it's about 100 million people a year, but we really want all billion knowledge workers around the world to ultimately come to G2 because I think, as you said, software is just so essential now. You know, right now we're in online webinar software or we're on Zooms, we're in Google Docs, we're in Salesforce, right? We're in all the software all day. And so we think it's really essential for all knowledge workers to succeed. So we have a long way to go. But in terms of going from that big vision as an entrepreneur, it's always hard. Like, where do you start? And we decided to start with just one category, which was CRM software. And that's because my first company, Big Machines, we were a partner to leading CRM vendors. We were partner to Salesforce, to Oracle, to Microsoft. So we knew that market well. And so we said, hey, let's test this idea. We had to test, will business people actually write authentic reviews? And will that work? Will it make good recommendations for software? And so we said, hey, let's test it in a category we know. It was this great idea for a review site. But then we also quickly learned most people actually don't want to write reviews. Same for me as a consumer, you know, when I step back, I always use reviews on Amazon. But then when I was starting G2, I probably had to admit I'd never written a review. And that's true for most consumers. You know, 99% of us just kind of shop quietly and we benefit from the few that actually share their experiences. And so totally. that was kind of the big challenge, getting that review flywheel going. And to do that, we then decided the first year we launched in 2012, we went to Dreamforce, you know, which is, I think, as you probably know, the biggest Salesforce conference in the world. We just put up a booth and we're handing out $5 Starbucks cards and saying, hey, if you leave a review, we'll give you a coffee. And that was how we started. Godard, talk to me a little bit about building trust. I'd love to hear how you thought about approaching developing trust in a product. Trust is really hard to build. It's really hard to keep. Tell us your thoughts. Yeah. And I think ultimately we trust people and we trust people we know. And so that was kind of the central idea to G2. And frankly, the problem with Yelp or even Google reviews, you hear all these horror stories, you know, about fake reviews. And so we said, hey, the only way people are going to trust the reviews is if they trust the person behind it. And G2 is a business site, a professional site. And so we decided to partner with LinkedIn. And because in the software industry, even 10 years ago, you know, I think LinkedIn is almost everyone's professional credential. Yep. And I think the first thing we do when we meet someone, you know, we check out their LinkedIn, at least when we meet them at work. And so we thought if we can tie the reviews to LinkedIn profile, and then ideally the software buyer can find someone in their network. So we also, we've partnered with LinkedIn. LinkedIn eventually became an investor in G2. But one of the features is you could filter on first degree LinkedIn connections. And Alexa, if you find a peer entrepreneur you know and like, and you trust them and they recommend an app, you know, you'll very likely trust that and trust that recommendation. And so we think that was and still is the key. We have to make sure that people behind the reviews are trusted and that you can see their professional credentials and ideally find a peer like you, whether you're a CEO, whether you're a digital marketer, you know, if you find a trusted peer and see their advice, then that's how we really build trust. 
What do you see in plain sight that maybe everybody listening who doesn't stare at developing G2, what predictions do you have? What do you see coming? This is not an original prediction this year, but I do think AI is really going to change everything. And, you know, I remember actually I first started working way back in the 90s. I remember when the first web browser came out by Netscape, and that was such an exciting moment. And that's actually what got me to the internet industry in the late 90s. It was the emergence of digital web browsers and visual browsers. And I think the AI moment is just as big. And at G2, we're innovating with it. So we've launched a G2 AI Monty. Because we also think rather than, and I described originally our vision, how the software buyer starts on Google and searches for best CM software. Yep. We actually think now they're probably going to start an AI. And we've built this G2 AI Monty as a software buying assistant. And I think the problem with traditional search is you had to know you're looking for CRM software. Yep. And same thing with G2 today, our taxonomy, you have to know. Whereas now with AI, you can just say, hey, my sales forecasting isn't working. I keep missing plan every quarter. How can you help me? And then AI Monty takes all the data, can read all the reviews and say, oh, wow. And so I think AI can be a unique conversational interface to software buyers on G2. And that's obviously for our own use case. But I also think most software can be reimagined. And the reality is, like I said, I worked for a long time in CRM, CPQ software. And reality, traditional business software, the users tend not to like. You know, like, let's take CRM, like sales reps have to fill in all these forms, required fields to update their opportunities, update their pipelines. And frankly, a sales rep never likes that. You know, it's kind of a distraction. And I think now with AI, I think there's the potential they no longer have to fill in those forms and workflows. The AI can just parse their emails with the customer, parse their conversations via Zoom or Gong recording, and automatically extract the structured data that sales management needs to properly rate the pipelines, do forecasting. And so I think it's going to automate away a lot of work. And really, I think software can be more behind the scenes. Yep where we can just do our work and the AI extracts all the data and even better in real time will coach us back. You know, in that CRM scenario, it might even say behind the scenes, hey, based on the customer's objections, here's the right answer, but it gives it to you real time in AI. And so I think it's both going to you know, just really make software easier to use and also make software much more intelligent. And I do think almost every software category is going to be reimagined. So it's a tremendous opportunity for entrepreneurs as well as existing vendors to innovate. I do think it'll be like the internet and it always takes a few years, maybe a couple of decades, right? But the companies that don't adopt AI, I do think they're going to fade away and many new exciting companies are going to emerge. Can you walk people through your career timeline and the multiple exits that you've had? Just because I don't think people can truly appreciate how wildly successful you've been as an internet entrepreneur. Thank you, Alexa. And I remember the first startup I got involved in, I, I wasn't actually the founder, but I was at Stanford Business School. This was 1998. And it was that original dot-com boom, which frankly was even a bigger boom. People say a couple of years ago, maybe that was a bubble, you know, like 2021 and all these unicorns, things were crazy. But I think things were much crazier in the late 90s. As in business school, we had all these speakers come in, Bill Gates, the Microsoft founder. And it was just so inspiring. I just want to get involved in the internet. So I started helping two Stanford computer science students. And I always say too bad it wasn't Larry and Sergey, the founders of Google that were starting Google at Stanford at that time. But the two entrepreneurs I met, they were doing something much more mundane. They were building Allianza's time and expense software, but I just decided, hey, I was going to be their like utility business guy. They were both coders, computer scientists, and they wanted the business person. Yep. And so I just decided to jump in and start helping them. And those were very heady times. And frankly, we realized we couldn't raise money on our own because they were just out of school and we didn't quite know what we're doing, but we quickly got today what probably we call Acquihired by this other entrepreneur, Farzad Debachi. He worked for Larry Ellison at Oracle and he raised, I think, like $250 million, took the company public in two years, and I was helping him do this. I kind of became his chief of staff and I'm like, wow, this is so amazingly easy. And 
he took the company public. I remember $10 billion market cap. I think it was May 4th, 2020, which in hindsight was the very peak of that internet bubble. And then I decided, well, I got to start my own company. You know, it's just so exciting. And frankly, he made it look really easy. And obviously in hindsight, there were also tremendous tailwinds. So I decided to start my own company, Big Machines. And it was around this internet vision. And I think back then also, everyone was already afraid of getting Amazon. But at that time, Amazon only sold books online. That was their first category. And there was no Kindle, right? These weren't eBooks, these were paper books. And then my father really inspired me for my first company. He was building a pump manufacturing company, making these very big pumps, big machines that are very complicated. And I decided I want to help my dad sell his pumps online. And to do that, I also realized he had only two IT people. They didn't even know how to host a web server. You know, they're very focused on their legacy ERP system, but they didn't know how to build a website, how to sell anything online. And so we decided to create big machines as an online selling engine for machinery companies. And, uh, and that was very exciting. I remember also that first year I raised $20 million based on this hype. And I had a few smart, wow. smart friends from MIT helping me build the company, but then honestly it got really hard because a year later that bubble burst and it was kind of a time like now where almost no one could raise money, but I think it was even worse because there was no AI. Right. I think VCs were just kind of like folding in 2002, 2003. Silicon Valley was honestly emptying. You could drive from San Francisco to San Jose in like 10 minutes, like no traffic on 101. Wow. Um, so it was a really big bust. And then we also were trying to sell our internet software to manufacturers. And also that was around the time 9-11 happened. So there was a recession and we'd call these manufacturers and they'd say, oh, it's kind of a cool idea, but we think the internet was a fad. And we're actually super happy sending out our paper catalogs and CD-ROMs with our product information to our customers and our distributors. So we don't need you. And so I think three years in, we were almost bankrupt. So it was actually really hard. Many years of struggle before we figured it out. Eventually, yes, big machines did succeed, you know, but it took us, I think, a dozen years you know, until Oracle acquired it and it was a great exit. But then we also, when Oracle bought big machines, we're like, wow, there's going to be a big gap in the Salesforce ecosystem because big machines turned into a CPQ configure price quote vendor. Yep. And when Oracle bought them, you know, we thought, wow, there's going to be no one serving Salesforce customers well. And so we actually decided to build another one. We also realized a lot of our very entrepreneurial team didn't love working for Oracle. Oracle is a great company, you know, great benefits, all that. But you know, if you're very entrepreneurial, it can get a bit boring. So yep. we took a hundred of them, raised a bunch of money and built it again, but purpose built for Salesforce. And that company, honestly, was a very quick success because the second company we really knew what we were doing, especially in CPQ, and also Salesforce was really growing. They were a great partner. And so within two years, we were acquired by Salesforce. And I think those were both about $400 million exits. But the first one, I think, took 12 or 13 years. The second one we were able to do in two years. Wow. You know, and actually, it was interesting. During that time, I was building Steelbrick. My co-founder, Tim, actually took over at G2. I've got kids and a family, so I decided I can't be CEO of two companies. So Tim did a great job scaling it. And then I spent some time at Salesforce integrating Steelbrick, learned a lot from Mark Benioff. Yep. Mark is still an entrepreneur idol of mine. And you know, I still want to build a company as big as him, you know, 30 billion in revenue, $200 billion market cap, and just tremendous wow. impact on the world that Mark has, also philanthropically. And so I decided to come back to G2 to try to really realize our vision here. But now I'm also executive chairman of some other startups, Logic, 3Kit, you know, some others that are doing really well, because I have realized I just love entrepreneurship. These companies are all people that have worked with us. I call it our entrepreneurial family. Now they've worked at our prior startups and then they decide they want to go build their own company. And that's probably what I see G2, I believe someday will ring the bell, but then probably my next chapter will be helping other entrepreneurs in our entrepreneurial family, you know, keep building businesses. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. 
I want to transition a little bit to you. Is there something that stands out from your childhood or something your parents said that when you really connect the dots and rewind that helped you be better at being such a talented entrepreneur? Probably two things. One was my father's influence. And as I mentioned, he was also an entrepreneur in a very different industry. He was building a pump manufacturing company. But I did always go around on business. And one summer I worked at his factory, going with him on weekends. So I was always talking about business. And I do think in hindsight, that inspired me a lot. And frankly, the other thing is, I remember in Germany, I was in a Waldorf school and they really encouraged creativity. And I also remember like my parents had to sign an agreement, like no TV and even no plastic toys, because they really wanted to just encourage natural creativity. And so I remember one of the things I loved doing as a kid was like building towers with wood blocks. And my goal would be to make the tower taller than my dad. He was about six feet tall and I was like a little kid, but I want to build a tower with these wood blocks taller than my dad. And, and I do think entrepreneurship is kind of like that, right? It's a creation, no different than building something with wood blocks or designing a house, but you're creating a company and that's your creation. Can you talk a little bit about the emotional stamina, the problem solving stamina, how you stay sharp at being able to keep solving ever growing complex problems? That's something I've learned over the years. And one thing I started working on towards the end of my first company, Big Machines, was conscious leadership. Because I do remember my first company, I mentioned there were years where we were failing and it just felt so heavy. You know, I had so much anxiety and oftentimes the fear, uncertainty, doubt, like my company's going to fail, you know, lose my dad's money, ruin my friend's careers, let down my customers. Like it felt like a really heavy burden. And I'm sure you've, you felt that as well as an entrepreneur, Alexa. There's a lot of that fear, uncertainty, doubt, right? And you kind of, I, as an entrepreneur, I go between euphoria and like, oh my God, we're going to change the world. Everything's perfect to like, oh my God, we're going to fail. <laughs> the world's ending. And I think it's that constant emotional cycle, which I also love. But then I think conscious leadership has really helped me deal with that. And part of it to me is meditating every day, working out every day. So it really starts with self-care so that you can be in a place to solve problems and be an inspirational leader. And frankly, whether it's quote unquote, a good day at work, a bad day at work, I keep that discipline. I always do that because I find I always, always feel better and then I can solve problems and hopefully inspire my team. Talk a little bit more about that conscious leadership. What does it mean to you? How do you describe it? Godard has already had a massive impact on my life. I'd asked you for a few problems I was trying to mm -hmm. solve and I, um, I won't share them here, but you, you gave me some of the best advice. But talk a little bit about conscious leadership and what you're trying to achieve in spreading that message and what is conscious leadership? Yeah. And I think what I'm trying to spread is just having more joy in work and life, especially as an entrepreneur right now. And you're kind of doing both, right? Entrepreneurship and being a young company. company, you're building your own investment firm and raising a family. And I remember those were probably also my most challenging days. I was in my thirties when you know, I had young kids and a young company and it can just feel so overwhelming. And that kind of took the joy out of a lot of the entrepreneurial journey for me, you know, where I had a lot more fear, stress, anxiety, fewer moments of joy. I think it does really, to me, help me separate from my thoughts, separate from my ego and my attachment to my company. And then I can just have a much clearer mind, clear perspective and feel the joy a lot more, deal with the fear and the stress much better and ultimately live a more joyful life at work, with my family, with myself. And that's why I do believe it's so essential. And I think Jim Dethmer, he's the founder of the Conscious Leadership Movement. There's a great website, conscious.is. Encourage you all to check out. But for me, it's really been transformational. You know, I'd enjoying life, work more. And I also think that's why I'm still doing it 25 years later. Because you know, I think most entrepreneurs, they like they do it once, they have one good exit. They're like, no effing way, I'm doing it again. 
<laughs> which maybe is sane, but I'm like, if I did it the same way I did build my first company, the same mindset, I wouldn't want to do it again because it just felt like such a grind. But I think my second, third, and now other companies I'm helping, it's like, it's from a more conscious place. It's more like, hey, I'm choosing to do this. And so I can do it with more joy while still feeling the highs and lows and enjoy the journey more and hopefully build better companies. You have said many times that Mark Benioff, and you even just said it now, is one of the best leaders you've ever seen. Can you share a good example or a story of something that really stuck with you? I think uh, one thing I think certainly of Mark is just Dreamforce. And if any of you have been to that event, but the whole, it really feels like a movement. And I think one of the things Mark Benioff always said, like when he was launching Salesforce, he's like, hey, it was never about selling features, but it was really you know, kind of selling just a better way to be. And kind of this more ephemeral, people just wanted to be part of the Salesforce movement. And there are many facets to that, but I think part of it also, you know, embedding philanthropy from day one, which he's always done. And, and I think now just talking about trailblazers, they're never really marketing the product, they're marketing their customers and their customers are trailblazers and their customers are part of the movement and it's making the trailblazers life better. And so I think really making it bigger than just the product and really making it about you know, making the world better, making your customers better, making your customers feel like they're part of a movement. I think that's something extremely unique that you know I've seen Mark create. And I think every time you go to an event like Dreamforce, you feel it. You have this really great quote, too much control is a bad thing. And you've learned that too much control in a business is a bad thing. What do you mean by that? Teach us what you've learned. You know, at the beginning as an entrepreneur, like day one, you control everything. I remember that like a G2, I remember I set up our accounting software, I set up our payroll, right? I designed the first product and I didn't code, like I had a co-founder CTO, but just about every other job and most entrepreneurs, founders do this, right? Because there's no one else to do it. And obviously then you also control everything. Cause like I controlled how the general ledger was set up. Then obviously as you get bigger, you realize you kind of have to let go because otherwise why hire people, right? And you'll kill yourself because you can't do all those jobs for many years, right? Without killing yourself. And then you also realize, wow, you can hire people that are better at those jobs and to go back to accounting. Now I have a very strong accounting leader, Joe Stuckle, and frankly, he knows a lot more about general ledgers and gap than I ever will. So he's better at that job. And then I think I also really like this concept that we got from Netflix and their founder, Reed, a fellow Henry Crown fellow of ours. But I think he talks about this uh, concept of freedom and responsibility. Obviously, you aim to hire great leaders and then you give them freedom and responsibility. And that means they get the freedom... And accounting might be an obvious example, but probably harder for most founders to let go of. Like I've also hired a brilliant chief product officer now, Sarah Rossio. And most founders, you know, including myself, were very product focused. So we want to control the product. But now I've realized Sarah, she's a better product leader than I am and is really taking our product execution, our vision to the next level. So I'm giving her the freedom to shape the product. But then she also has the responsibility to deliver. And we use actually the V2 mom I learned from Mark Benioff to align on that because we define our key methods, including for our product. Like, what are the key things we're going to get done in the product this year? We define key measures in terms of what impact are those product features going to have on our users, on our revenue. And then I think it's up to the leader. They can control their budget, their resources, they have the freedom to shape the product, their team, but they're responsible for delivering on the measures that we align on. And then it's also very freeing as an entrepreneur. For good, there's a lot less you do, right? A lot less I do day to day, and you can do more of the, the stuff you enjoy doing and frankly, be less and less controlling and involved in most parts of the business. Can you give us a sense of your own routine and methodology that you do every day? Can we talk a little bit about the key pillars of your routine that allow you to thrive? I do think to thrive for me, it's about physical, mental, and spiritual health. And so I do aim to work on all three every day. 
And I do find for me, like working out, running hard. Now I've gotten really also into biking. Actually, I just did a 118 mile bike ride. Triple wow. pass. What I always find, like, you know, if you do a really hard physical workout, any mental stress from work for me tends to fade away. Totally. And I just feel better. I think it keeps you younger, healthier. It keeps your mind fresher. And I actually have my EA schedule at least an hour every day for what I call peak spiritual, mental, physical time. And also my whole team can see that because I hope to set the example. I also tell my team, hey, take at least an hour a day for just yourself. I realize sometimes there's life circumstances, family issues that prevent you from doing it. But otherwise, you know, I aim to do it every day, whether I'm traveling or whatever I'm doing. And, you know, taking that hour every day to work out, ideally, you know, spend five to 15 minutes meditating, which may be more spiritual, mind clearing. And then also I, I do enjoy reading and learning from others, you know, which I would probably put in both the spiritual mental bucket to keep you know, learning about the world. Well, I do enjoy listening also to spiritual gurus. Like one I enjoy is Seth Guru, you know, kind of Indian spiritual leader. He also wrote a great book, Inner Engineering, and I just enjoy listening to his YouTubes and doing some of his guided meditations. And so I think he's uh, inspiring me right now on the, the spiritual dimension. If you had to pick one or two or three just categories or things that you see, I know you made a little bit of prediction about AI and software, but just talk a little bit about maybe some of the things that you just see almost in plain sight ahead of you that get you really excited. I love the Martin Luther King quote, the long arc of history is towards justice. Yep. And while there's horrible things happening in the world, you know, especially like things like in Ukraine. And, but I think if you look at the long arc of history, I think the world is getting better and better. And so I am an optimist that we have three kids going off to college now that will keep making the world better and that more and more humans will get to experience joy in their life and less misery. And so I am, I'd say overall an optimist because it's so easy to focus on you know, all the things going wrong in the world. But I do think humanity in the world and our consciousness will, will keep getting better. Goodard, I want to move to the quick fire round where we just want to learn from you. I'm going to ask you questions. First thing that comes to your mind, what gets you up every day? The sun. When you are interviewing somebody, trying to really get to the core of who they are, what do you ask? I really want to understand their why, their motivation. And if they see joining us as a positive path to their next career peak. Is there a quote that you live by? Is there a quote or a mantra, something that has really struck you that kind of is a pillar of you? I would attribute this to Jim Dethmer. It's to live fully in the moment. Can you name a book or two that's impacted your life and why? One I mentioned earlier was Inner Engineering by Seth Guru. And he does talk all about how you can engineer yourself for happiness, including mental, physical, spiritual self-care. And so I think if that's the one that's influencing me the most right now. Give us another book that you feel like everyone in business should maybe read. And I mentioned earlier the book by Reed, uh, Netflix founder, No Rules Rules. I do think, especially for us entrepreneurs, as our companies get bigger, I think Reed's done such a good job of keeping an entrepreneurial culture, you know, even as Netflix has grown to global market leadership. And so I think that book really inspires me, and I, I recommend it to every entrepreneur. Biggest pinch me moment to date in your career, and I'm going to let you name two because you've had a few. I would say one was being with Mark Benioff the day we announced our steel brick acquisition joining Salesforce. And I think Mark was doing a big media event in San Francisco, frankly, about many topics, not just our acquisition, but then just being there with him, sharing with us the world. That felt really exciting and rewarding. I would say one more recent was I remember when G2 became a unicorn 
this was in the middle of 2021. And we actually, and this was, we were also just kind of coming out of the, the deep pandemic lockdown. And I just remember we had a party with our team on the Chicago River and just being with everyone in person again, partly because of the pandemic, we hadn't seen them in a year and then celebrating us becoming a unicorn together. That was really wonderful to you know, be with the team and feel the joy together. Godard, you're somebody who's had like a bigger impact on me in my life than you probably really appreciate. I want to end by asking, life's kind of short. What other advice do you have for people out there trying to achieve their best potential, live their best life? Give us another nugget or two of life advice, general life advice. Don't be a victim, you know, because we can always feel as entrepreneurs, as humans, all these things are coming at us. You can always say, oh, things are happening to me. Versus looking at the world like something you can create and by me and taking responsibility for everything in your life. And I think that can just have a much more positive outlook where you're creating, you're making your own movie. And so even things that annoy you, you're like, huh, what part did I have in creating this? And how is it serving me? I think having that mindset, you know, shifting from to me, like I'm a victim of the world to a by me, I'm creating the world can just be really powerful. Godard, first of all, thank you so much for joining us here today. We cannot wait to see where you take G2 and what you accomplish. Everybody out there, if you haven't already checked out G2.com, please do. If you're ever evaluating software, it is the only place on the planet to go. And you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Godard, thank you for being a friend. Thank you for being an inspiration. Most importantly, thank you for being somebody who loves building and really creates jobs and incredible opportunities for the world. You're the best. Now, thank you, Alexa, so much for hosting me. And I love what you're doing at Inspired Capital. So I know you're helping many entrepreneurs build their own dreams. So thank you. And thank you for hosting me. Deloitte understands that one size doesn't fit all. Each emerging growth company has its own unique needs and issues at different stages of growth. As your startup grows, Deloitte aligns its approach to adapt to that growth. Quality is their top priority. Their approach to client services focus on the priorities and challenges of high-growth companies, the road to IPO, and a commitment to the venture capital community. From startup to IPO and beyond, Deloitte is here to help. See how at Deloitte.com forward slash US forward slash EGC. That's Deloitte.com, D-E-L-O-I-T-T-E.com forward slash US forward slash EGC.